Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled, Authentic Walk. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Billboard magazine recently ranked what they consider to be the top 50 love songs of all time. They tackled this difficult feat by developing a point system that took into consideration how many weeks a song was number one on its top 100 charts, the number of weeks it spent on the top 100 charts, and then a few other variables. You would probably recognize some songs on the list that I did not, and I would recognize some songs that you don't, and we would probably all recognize some songs together. Here's just a few samples, though, of uh, some of the songs that were on the list that I recognized. At number 45 uh, on the list, there was You've Lost That Loving Feeling by the Righteous Brothers. I was surprised to find that it only spent two weeks at number one in 1965. I thought it would have been number one longer than that. Maybe that's because Top Gun made that song popular again when I was a teenager. Um, number, at number 31, there was I Want to Know What Love Is by Foreigner. Two weeks at number one in 1984. Some of you danced at your prom to that song. And then at number 24, Love Will Keep Us Together by Captain and Tennille. Four weeks at number one in 1975. At number 13 on the top 50 love songs list was Uh, Because You Loved Me by Celine Dion, six weeks at number one in 1996, and then at number six on the top 50 love songs of all time, I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston, 14 weeks at number one in 1992, and I think that was the record breaker, the longest top-ranked love song on the list, and then The last, the final, the number one love song of all time, according to Billboard magazine, Endless Love by Diana Ross and Lionel Richie, nine weeks at number one in 1981. Sorry if you were disappointed at the outcome. You can file your comments and complaints at billboard.com. Billboard concluded their list with uh, this interesting comment. They said, uh, songs have been written about every topic imaginable, (laughs) but the best songs, the best ones, are written about love. It's sonic proof that while musical fads and fashions will change with every generation, love, however, and the songs inspired by it will never go out of style. In fact, I was thinking as I prepared this message this week, we probably would be hard-pressed to find an artist that has not recorded a love song, and probably be hard-pressed to find in our catalog of music that we have on our phones or at home in our CD cabinet, a CD or an album with no love song on it, or no reference to love. I think this is because we like love songs. And I think we like them because God created us to love, and he created us to be loved. Love songs declare that true love has been lost, found, or not found yet. 
The New Testament teaches that the Lord wants the world to see true love in his church, the love modeled by Jesus Christ. And John is going to talk to us about that today as we continue our series in 1 John called Authentic Walk. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to 1 John chapter 3 and pull out the sermon notes in your worship folder. If you forgot your Bible, just raise your hand and one of our ushers can bring one to you. We want you to have a copy of the scriptures in front of you so you can follow along with us. Let's review our series key verse uh, that we've been trying to memorize together as a church. It's uh, printed on the outline that you have in front of you. It's also on the scripture, excuse me, on the screen behind me. It's 1 John chapter 2, uh, verses 4 and 6. Let's read it out loud together. Whoever says I know him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I think these, 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 these two verses, it's half of verse 4 and half of verse 6 I put together to make it very succinct and memorable. It captures what John keeps on telling us week after week. If you claim to know Jesus Christ, then walk with him. Real Christians really walk with Jesus. This crusty old apostle has been saying with a tell-it-like-it-is boldness for the last few weeks, if you claim to know Jesus, then follow him, love like him, sacrifice for him, and if necessary, suffer for him. And if you don't know Jesus, John also says the inverse throughout this letter. If you don't want to follow him, if you don't want to love like him, if you don't want to sacrifice for him or don't want to suffer for him, then don't claim to know him. At the beginning of this series, I mentioned that one of the ways to unravel the true meaning of a Bible book is to look for repeated terms. And you might, remen uh, you might remember I mentioned there are two terms that John repeats several times throughout 1 John. And they are worth highlighting again because they're going to show up today in the passage that we're looking at together. They are, uh, and this is on your outline so you can write it down, love. John mentions love uh, more than 25 times in 1 John. He uses the word love to refer to the kind of love found in a relationship with the Lord, but also he refers to a horizontal love with other believers in the church. And he references the love of Christ in conjunction with the love that should be shown by the church and in the church by believers because of the love that Christ first showed. The other key word that John uses repeatedly is the word know, as in knowledge or to know someone. He uses the Greek word for know, which means to have knowledge, but also to have an experience, meaning to have the experience of knowing Christ personally as your Savior. And he uses the word know 20 to 30 times throughout this letter, depending on which Bible translation you look at. And again, I wanted to bring these two terms up again for you because they're going to show up in the passage we're looking at today. Thus, our big idea for the today, by the way, is this. Real Christ followers demonstrate Christ's love in his church. Real Christ followers demonstrate Christ's love 
in his church. As we look at chapter 3, verses 11 to 18 this morning, John is going to answer at least two questions for us. The first, why should we love our brothers and sisters in the faith? And then secondly, he will answer the question, what does loving one another look like? What does it look like? He addresses this subject... I think because he either saw unloving behavior in the churches that he had visited, or he may have seen this as an area that the churches he was overseeing and visiting could have gotten better at. It's not clear. But I think the mere fact that he spends time addressing loving one another and how to do it suggests that, well, there was a problem or this was an area that needed to be improved. He does so by, first of all, in verses 11 to 13, giving a negative example of what love is not, and then he switches in verses 14 to 18 to the positive. So I wanted to tell you that before we work our way through the passage together. Negative is up front in verses 11 to 13, and then the positive in 14 to 18. Let's look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 where John says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Here's point one on your outline. The first thing that John tells us is that the world loves to hate. The world loves to hate. The apostle begins by using the story of Cain and Abel from Genesis chapter 4 as a negative example of what love is not. Don't do this, is what John is saying. Now, many of you may be familiar with the story, but for those who are not, let me give you a quick synopsis. And If you want to look it up later and read it for yourself or in your personal devotions, you can do that. It's Genesis 4, verses 1 to 16. We're introduced in Genesis 4 to Cain and Abel. They are the sons of Adam and Eve. Cain, we're told, was a farmer who worked the ground. Abel, his brother, was a, a herder of some type, a shepherd who had flocks to manage. And so they both had two different means of income, two different careers. We're told in Genesis 4 that on the day of worship, Abel brought the first fruits of his labor, his best to God, to give as an offering to the Lord. But Cain chose to bring his leftovers to the Lord. He did not bring his best. He did not bring his first fruits. And so, as a result, God accepted Abel's offering but rejected Cain's. This rejection made Cain very angry at God and at his brother. And so he killed his brother Abel. And then Cain was punished by God. Now, there are two things worth noting that I think caused Cain to be so hateful and unloving. Here's letter A on your outline, and it's this, that Cain did not like God's unchanging expectation of our best. And thus, his response to God was unrighteous anger. You see, because Cain was worldly and most likely not redeemed, in fact, John says here in the text that he was of the evil one, uh, 
He didn't love the Lord. He was filled with pride. And thus he was deeply offended when he was told by God that his offering wasn't good enough. And so because he loved himself, Cain wanted God to lower his expectations instead of Cain raising himself to meet God's expectations. So it was, it was you know, God, you change. I'm not going to change, which is very prideful, which probably goes without saying. So Cain selfishly thought that keeping the best of his profits for himself and giving God his leftovers would be good enough for God. But God basically told him, if you really loved me, you would want to give me your best. The second thing that made Cain hateful, letter B on your outline, is this, is Abel's undivided love for God. He resented his brother Abel. And Cain's response, thus, was jealousy. Abel got accepted by the Lord, or Abel's offering did, and that angered him so much that he killed his brother. Abel's love for the Lord made Cain look bad. Cain didn't like that. And so we see the fickleness and the wickedness of the human heart in Cain and the fact that because Cain can't kill God, he chose to kill Abel instead. Now let's be careful that we don't look down our noses at Cain and think, oh, I would never do that. Because haven't we all at one time or another taken out our anger at God on our loved ones. Because we couldn't get at God, we vented on our loved ones. I'm ashamed to admit that I've done that a time or two. We're upset at the Lord. He's not doing what we want. He's not answering prayers or he allowed something to happen. We didn't want him to happen. And so since we can't get back at him, we just bark at our loved ones and those that happen to be living with us or snap at them. John uses Cain as a negative example because I think John wants to tell us, don't love the way the world loves. Don't do it. And the way the world loves is the way Cain loved. This shouldn't surprise us because the scriptures... The fact that John would say this because the scriptures make it abundantly clear that the way the world loves is in stark contrast to how the Lord loves. Someone once said that the world describes love like this. Love is a feeling you feel when you have a feeling that you've never felt before. <laughs> Are you feeling me? What I'm saying? Yeah. Here's a, just a few examples of how Christ followers are to love differently than the world does. And I thought I'd show you a table here on the keynote screen behind me. Um, if you're listening online or watching online, just uh, if you would imagine a table with two columns, and on the left column is worldly love, and on the right is Christ-like love. And I'm just going to compare and contrast real quick to help you see the difference. Worldly love is initiated and maintained by emotion. Thus, you hear the world say things like, I'm no longer in love with you. I've fallen out of love with you. 
Christ-like love, though, is initiated by a decision, not emotion. I will love you, says Christ-like love, I will love you regardless of how I feel. Worldly love is conditional. It says, I will love you only if I like you. And when I stop liking you, I won't love you anymore. But Christ-like love is unconditional. It says, I will love you even when you're not likable. Worldly love is selfish. I will love you so that you give me what I want, but Christ-like love is sacrificial. I will love you even when it hurts, and I will expect nothing in return. Worldly love is convenient. It says, I will only love you until it becomes difficult or inconvenient, and then, sorry, the love's all done. Christ-like love, on the other hand, is covenantal. It says, I will love you no matter how hard it is because I gave my word that I would love you. And I will keep my word even when it's hard. And then finally, worldly love accepts sin. It has sort of a two-sided coin to it. On the one hand, worldly love says, if you love me, you would just let me be myself. Thus, if you point out anything that I might be doing wrong, I'll accuse you of hating on me. Stop hating on me, man. That's a new cliche the world has. I'm not hating you. I'm just trying to tell you you're making a poor decision. No, you're hating on me. And there's been songs now written about that. On the other hand, on the other side of the relationship coin, though, worldly love also accepts sin in that, in that some people will accept sin because they fear losing the relationship with that person if they point the sin out to them. Well, this is in direct contrast to Christ-like love. You see... Christ-like love addresses sin instead of accepting it, and it addresses it, because I love you, I will tell you this. I will lovingly help you deal with your sin. Because I love you, I want to help you get right with the Lord, because if you continue in sin, your sin will keep you from enjoying intimacy with him. Look back at the text in verse 13. John says then, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. This suggests that John's audience was already surprised that they had been rejected by the world. These first century believers might have thought, you know, if we just love people, we can please God and be liked by the world. But that's not how it works. They might have suffered persecutions for the same reason that Cain killed Abel. Their godliness, John's audience, exposed the sinfulness of the world. Some unbelievers will resent believers because the righteousness that Christ has given them will convict the unbeliever of their unrighteousness. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians. He says, to some we are the aroma of life, and to the others... The aroma of death. In addition to protecting the church's witness, verse 13 gives us another reason why believers need to love one another inside the church, and that is that true Christians will already be receiving scorn outside in the world. 
And so the church needs to be a place of refuge from hatred. So how do we apply this? Because the word was written to transform us, not to just inform us. Here's the first application that comes to mind, and that is make sure your love isn't worldly. Make sure your love isn't worldly. Do you, do you love others only when you feel like it? Or do you lead your emotions by loving regardless of how you feel? Do you only love those that are like you? Or do you love those that are different than you? Do you tolerate sin that the Lord would not tolerate because you fear losing the affections or relationships with that person? See, biblical love is the denial of self for another's gain. And thus, real Christ followers demonstrate Christ's love in his church. Let's look at the next couple of verses, verses 14 and 15. We know that we have passed out of death into life, John says, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Here's number two in your outline. Christ-like love is one proof of salvation. In chapter 2, John gave us another proof, that is, in verses 4 and 6, he said, whoever abides in him ought to walk in the way in which he walked. John gives a few proofs throughout his letter of litmus test for salvation. Now he gives this one. He says, we know, in verse 14, there's one of the key words, by the way, We've passed out of death into life. This is salvation language that John is using, describing what happens when a person becomes born again by giving their life to Christ. One of the many evidences that this has happened is the new believer becomes more loving. John is saying, we know experientially that we have been saved because we now have a love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Everyone who hates his brother, though, is a murderer. Now, most of us read that verse there in verse 15, and we think to ourselves, well, I've never murdered anyone, and I probably will never do so, because, I mean, I'd go to jail. Well, in the words of the ESPN college football analyst, Lee Corso, I just want to say, not so fast. <laughs> not so fast. You see, because as I was studying this passage this week, I kept asking the Lord, how can I make sure, Lord, that nobody in the room Sunday morning at Freedom Middle School gets off the hook here? I really want to make sure that nobody reads that, oh, man, as long as you don't murder anybody, you're okay. I want to make sure we don't walk away thinking, I'm good, this doesn't apply to me. You see, remember that Jesus said, hating another person is the same as murder. If you need a reference on that, it's in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. Jesus also said, entertaining lustful thoughts is the same as committing adultery, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You see, Jesus raised the spiritual bar 
by basically saying that your intent and your motives matter just as much, if not more, than your actions do. So what, what do we do with that? Well, you see, we may not actually follow through with the act of murder, but according to the scriptures, there are other ways that we can stab a brother or sister in the back. We can do it by gossiping about them at our small group, slandering them, being sarcastic. That's a cutting type of put-down humor. We can, we can be hateful when we have a critical spirit or when we're passive-aggressive, as the world calls it. Uh, the Bible calls passive-aggressive behavior as scheming or being crafty. It's, it's being nice up front to somebody face-to-face, -face, but behind their back, planning evil. Scheming is what the Bible calls it. We can stab others in the back by seeking revenge, not resolving conflict biblically, or not forgiving someone that's repented. These are all unloving behaviors, and some are birthed from a hateful heart. So what do we do? How do we apply these next couple of verses? Here's, here's, I think, the application that John would have for us, and that is we need to monitor our hearts closely. Because what John and Jesus are both saying is that what's going on in the heart is what matters most. David acknowledged this in Psalm 139 where he says, Oh Lord, before a word is even on my tongue, you know it. And then at the end of Psalm 139, David prays a prayer that I've prayed many times before. He says in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, Search me, O Lord, and know my heart, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, David knew the Lord is always watching my heart. He's not impressed. The Lord, by the way, did you know the Lord's not impressed if you manage to stay out of jail by not committing murder, but have a heart that's been hardened toward an unbeliever and sort of wishes evil on them? I read a story a few years ago about a, a truck driver, a semi-truck driver that was at a men's retreat. He had recently given his life to Christ. And so at the men's retreat, they were having some testimony time, and the truck driver was asked to share how Jesus had changed his life. And after a pause and a long pause and some thought, the, the truck driver said, Well, when I, now that I know Jesus, when I find someone tailgating my truck, I no longer drive on the shoulder to kick up rocks on their car. <laughs> I don't do that anymore. <laughs> I love that story because it's, it seems like a small thing, and I've seen that done before. Either the truck driver was doing it on purpose or he was dozing off at the wheel. I don't, I don't know. But, um, <laughs> but I, I love the story because the truck driver obviously understood that the love of Christ needed to come through him in a tangible way, in a demonstrable way. Real Christ followers demonstrate Christ's love in the church. Look at uh, verses 16 to 18 now as we uh, wrap things up. John says, 
By this we know love. There's another key word there, two of them, by the way. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in the word, in the word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Here's the third point on your outline, the third truth that I think John's trying to tell us, and that is that Christ's love paints a picture of the gospel. Christ's love paints a picture of the gospel. If Cain was the negative example of what it means to be unloving or hateful, then Jesus Christ is the positive example. Do this instead, John says. Be like Christ. Verse 16, by this we know love. Obviously, this points to the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for our sins. Love is one of the central pillars of the gospel because love is the only thing that would compel a holy God to send his only son as a sacrifice. It's love that melts hardened hearts and makes us want to give everything that we have to him. So what's that mean for us? Well, John says in verse 16, we ought to lay down our lives. Living a life of sacrifice is the standard for all professing Christ followers. Jesus said in Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And when we do this, the world sees the gospel play out through the church. This in turn compels the world to ask, what is it about you that's so different? Ah, oh, let me tell you, my life was changed when I gave my heart to Jesus Christ. You see, biblical love is the denial of self for another's gain. But what we see in the scriptures in Luke 9, and we see it here in 1 John 3, is the inverse can be true. Selfishness is the kryptonite to biblical love. When we're selfish, we can't love like Jesus would want us to. And so, um, as we uh, circle the tower for landing here, I want to close by giving three types of subversive selfishness that hinder Christ-like love. These are three things I've observed in recent years that are becoming more and more common in churches that I think are making it more difficult for professing believers to love one another. And so here's, here's the first one. I've watched the evil one craftily deceive many people into following these three types of selfishness. Letter A is being overcommitted in their schedule. There are many believers that would say, I want to love and serve my brothers and sisters in church. Yeah, I want to, but I just don't have time. Their kids are involved with a lot of extracurricular activities. They have a Disneyland membership, a timeshare, a second house, a boat, a camper, etc. On and on and on and on and on. All good things. None of them are outright sinful, but they have allowed themselves to be deceived into... Um, basically saying yes to too many good things instead of prioritizing by saying yes to a few greater things, the things that the Lord 
calls us to do. And so instead of overtly saying, nah, I don't want to serve in a church. I just want to come and consume, and then I want to go home. It's, no one would outright, outright say that. I don't want to be in a small group where I can learn how to love other people. No professing believer outright says that. Instead, the adversary dupes them into being so overextended and so overcommitted they don't have room in their life to love and serve others. The Lord sees it as, I've given you 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year to steward. And you've chosen to spend it all on things that you want to do instead of giving me the time I want from you. Thus, this is how the adversary pulls off the deception. Overcommitted believers aren't guilty of hating their brethren. They're just too busy to love them. A.W. Tozer once said this, Whatever tends to separate us in person or in heart from our fellow Christians is not of God, but it is of the flesh or of the devil. Conversely, whatever causes us to love the children of God is likely to be of God. Here's the next subversive type of selfishness that I see the evil one working in the church and that's B, being overspent. Some are overcommitted, some are overspent in their budget. Again, the evil one convinces us that all of our wants are actually needs, so we commit all of our money that the Lord's entrusted to us to worldly things. So when the Holy Spirit brings a need across our plate or our path, we can't respond to it because there's no liquidity in our budget. Thus, this is how the adversary pulls off the deception. Overspent believers are not technically refusing to give back to the Lord. They've just tied up all the Lord's money and other things, so they can't give the way the Lord wants them to. Isn't he crafty? So they're overcommitted or they're overspent. And then here's the third way I see subversive selfishness, hindering love in the church, and that's being overly critical. The third type of subversive selfishness that some believers fall prey to is dwelling on the perceived weaknesses of others while expecting others to only see their strengths. So this is how the adversary pulls off this deception. Overly critical believers aren't guilty of hating their brethren. No, no, no. We would never hate. Instead, they just withhold love from them because they choose to see and magnify their weaknesses. So I'm, I'm not loving the way the Lord would want me to, but I'm also not hating. I get to ride this new middle ground, this new fence I've created. One root of this problem is that the adversary has convinced them that they can only love people they like in the church or people that are like them. But God's word doesn't require us to like everyone in the church, but we are commanded to love them. So, 
are you overcommitted or overspent or overly critical? If so, I would urge you to do business with the Lord and ask him to help you make changes so that you can do our final application, which is make room to love in your life. Make room to love. Make room in your schedule. Make room in your budget. Make sure that in your schedule, you you know the difference between discretionary and non-discretionary time. Chances are you don't have to do everything that's on your calendar. You can say no to some things. You don't have to have all the things that you've allocated money to either. You can say no to some things. Make sure the Lord's getting his portion first, and then set your standard of living on what's left. And in your heart, instead of being critical of others, try extending grace to them, the same grace that you would want from them in return for your weaknesses. So, John says, Christ-like love paints a picture of the gospel. And we need to be on guard that we're not overcommitted, that we're not overspent, or nor overly critical. Well, as we close, I want to just say that we have a great opportunity as a church this month to demonstrate Christ's love. Being willing to lay down our lives and to show love, not in word, but in deed. We're ramping up in our church for Spring Fest. We're calling it Northwest Spring Fest. I had to change the name this week, just being transparent, because I found through a Google search there's another church in another part of town doing Spring Fest. So since they had the name, I thought, well, we'll adapt it to Northwest Spring Fest, and it sounded kind of catchy. So the ramp-up starts next Sunday, March 11th. If you haven't signed up to be on an invitation team yet, please see Jacob Panero after the service. We need everybody's help getting invitations out into the community. We're putting on a really, really nice festival. Also, by the way, I, just, I got news just this week. I'm really excited about this. Uh, uh, 88.3 Life FM that uh, carries the Vertical Minute, and you probably listen to them like my family does. Um, they're going to do a live remote for us at the festival. So... That's, that's cool. So I think our, our cool factor as a church just went up with them coming. So we're just, we got hip as a church all of a sudden. Um, then on March 17th, our men are putting on a free car wash here at Freedom Mill School. It's going to be right back here at the, the parking lot on the uh, east side next to Juetta. And our men's ministry is doing that. We need all guys available. And uh, uh, we're doing that so that we can hand out invitations to uh, Spring Fest. And then, um, finally, if, well, if you, if you want to help with that, please see David Williams, Rob Geiser, Lee Lyons after the service. They can help you uh, find out how you can help out with the car wash. Um, and then, finally, on March 24th is Spring Fest. It's all hands on deck. We thank you for all of you that have signed up to do carnival games. I'm so stoked. You guys always have responded, so thank you. And um, we're really excited about that. Uh, we need everybody's help. We need you to be here uh, to make it a success. And uh, we're doing everything we can, planning behind the scenes, to, uh, to do this with excellence. So uh, we want to use Spring Fest to invite Northwest community here 
to come to our Easter services so they can hear the gospel. That's why we're doing it. So, And we're doing it because the world wants to know what love is. So let's show them there's an endless love. You have no idea how long I prayed for a closing. I agonized over how to close this message. So why don't we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for modeling how to love. Lord, I want to pray for those that uh, might be here today or listening online that struggle to love because they haven't seen it modeled. Or maybe they've been hurt deeply. Maybe even hurt repeatedly a number of times where their heart has become calloused. Lord, would you do a work of your spirit in their hearts? Please, Lord, would you help them learn to love? Lord, there may be others here today that have been hurt by a church or churches because they haven't seen love held up as a standard or it's not been, maybe it's been worldly love in your church. Lord, would you redeem that pain and those scars? Because here at Vanguard, Lord, we want to love biblically. We want to love the way Christ did. We want to be covenantal in how we do it. We want to address sin lovingly when necessary. We want to do it unconditionally and unselfishly and be sacrificial in our love. Would you help us, Lord, to be that kind of church? It's not easy. And so we're asking for your help because we know it's not easy. It goes against the sin nature that lives within each heart here, including mine, and it goes against the grain of the world and the kind of love that we see every day. Help us, Lord, to love differently here at Vanguard. We ask for your favor on our Springfest preparations. Father, would you open doors? Would you bring people to Springfest so they can hear about Vanguard and hear about Jesus? Bring people, Lord. Guests, bring them to our Easter services so we can talk about the greatest story ever told. Christ coming to earth, giving his life on the cross, and being resurrected three days later so that we could have eternal life. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.